Hello, and welcome back to Clinical Neurophysiology, Ask the Experts, where we dive deeper into the publications of the Journal of Clinical Neurophysiology with the authors who wrote the publications themselves. I'm your host, Nick Stevenson, and I'm so excited to have you here with me today. Connect with us on the IFCN Facebook and Twitter pages if you have any questions about this episode, or would like to be on a possible future episode to discuss your own research in the Journal of Clinical Neurophysiology. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lorenzo Ricci, a clinical neurologist and neurophysiologist at University Campus Biomedico in Rome, Italy. He received his MD from University Campus Biomedico in 2015 and completed his neurology residency there as well in 2020. Dr. Ricci was involved in a research fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital Laboratory of Children's Brain Dynamics, where he mastered the skill of electromagnetic source imaging in pre-surgical evaluation of patients with focal drug-resistant epilepsy. Dr. Ricci completed a clinical fellowship at Bambino Gesù Children's Hospital in Rome with their pediatric epilepsy surgery team. He's currently involved in a PhD program in neurological sinuses at University Campus Biomedico, where his project is titled EKSO-XO for Life, Use of Robotic Systems with Exoskeletons in Patients Affected by Severe Disability Caused by Ischemic Stroke or Spinal Cord Lesion. Dr. Ricci is a member of the American Academy of Neurology and the Italian Neurology Society. Dr. Ricci had previously presented work at the 32nd International Epilepsy Congress in 2017 titled De Novo Multifocal Myoclonus Induced by Lamotrigine in a Temporal Lobe Epilepsy Case, and in 2020 an oral presentation titled Measuring the Effects of First Antiepileptic Medication in Temporal Lobe Epilepsy, Predictive Value of Quantitative EEG Analysis. He's also presented twice in 2021 at the International League Against Epilepsy. We're so excited to have Dr. Ricci on our podcast today to discuss his career and his most recent publication in the journal Clinical Neurophysiology titled Machine Learning for Predicting Levetiracetam Treatment Response in Temporal Lobe Epilepsy. Dr. Ricci will also be presenting this research at the International League Against Epilepsy European Congress in Geneva in summer of 2022. You're listening to Clinical Neurophysiology, Ask the Experts. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lorenzo Ricci, for joining us today on Clinical Neurophysiology, Ask the Experts. We're so excited to have you here to talk about your work. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really honored to be invited, and I hope I will answer your questions in a clear way. So let's start. Great. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, research paper and what inspired you to want to explore this topic? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, actually, uh, right now I'm a PhD student in uh, Rome, and my main focus of my PhD uh, thesis is about the application of uh, machine learning technique for the prediction of outcome in people with epilepsy. So machine learning, te- machine learning is quite a new, interesting term. It's, it's going very well in research right now, and there is a lot of interest in it because it's something like uh, this bl- magic black box that could predict and give us information that we were not able to see uh, at first. So, of course, it's a very fascinating, fascinating t- uh, subject, but of course, we must be uh, absolutely critical on it and we must analyze it with all the technical, um, uh, with technical rigor and with the technical um, scientific process that, process that, of course, we are able to do. Um, as, as for now, uh, machine learning has been applied for neuroimaging technique mostly, so for MRI, and to predict the, um, the identification of lesion in patients that have smiled or uh, not so pathological MRI. So just for now, it was applied for neuroimaging, and but it was quite uh, neglected in neurophysiology. But of course, uh, um, neurophysiology has a lot of data that could be uh, use for machine learning because what is machine learning? Machine learning is an uh, advanced statistical technique that can let us classify, uh, classify, classify objects, classify things. But in order to do so, we must know the ground truth. So we must know uh, before we give information to the algorithm, which is what. So we must know. Uh, 
first, uh, what type of data we're analyzing. So we must have a huge amount of data, and this is, it is possible to have a huge amount of data with the neurophysiology because we have DAG data, which unlike the MRI are dynamic data. So we have uh, registration that can last also days, that can last, uh, we have a lot of time of registration. Um, and we have a lot of patients that do this examination because DEG is one of the most common techniques used in clinical practice. So it will be just natural to apply machine learning to this data in order to answer some of the most common questions that we have as clinicians for patients with, for people with epilepsy. So one simple, simple question could be to understand if patient that we suspect to have epilepsy, but we are not sure based on DEG, and one EG which doesn't have clear abnormalities uh, on uh, visual inspection because uh, as physicians, we are used to see the EG uh, to search for spikes, to search for interictal, the so-called interictal abnormalities to tell us that this patient is at risk to have future seizures, but it is not always the case. So we may have an absolutely normal EG, but we must still wonder whether there are some hidden fissures, some obscure fissure that can tell us uh, with the large, uh, large anticipation that this patient will have in the future another seizure. And that's one of the most common questions that we could uh, ask the machine learning to solve for us. And we have a lot of data on this. My project is on this line, but it's a little bit different because my objective, my idea was to understand if with the EG data and the EG recorded with the low density G. So this is a technique that every epilepsy centers in all, uh, in all countries uh, have. So it's a very widely available, very accessible. If we could use that information that every center has to understand it, to, uh, to see if we could predict the answer to the anti-seizure medication, which are very, which are a lot, which are numerous and uh, which could be uh, affected by adverse events. That would be a, a great advantage for physicians because we will know which drug to use in, uh, in advance and we could know which drug would work on that patient. So if we have, for, ex for example, a patient with focal epilepsy with temporal lobe epilepsy, which is the most common type of epilepsy in adults, and we want to try the, one of the most common drug, which is levetiracetam, which is used in adults with epilepsy, we could use this model to understand if this is a right choice and if we can go on with this choice before even trying the drug. And that was the main purpose of the paper that was published in the neurophysiology. And we analyzed a group of patients with temporal lobe epilepsy. We have 23 patients. And we saw that with DG performed before the initiation of the drug, and DG performed after three months the initiation of the gamma. So it was a very recent EG. It was quite at the beginning of the, of the therapy. And we saw that with these two information, we could train a machine learning algorithm, which is, uh, uh, it is called supervised learning. It is called supervised because we knew uh, it, is, it was a retrospective study, so we knew that our patient had focal epilepsy and that they had uh, an answer to the drug or not. So we have two types of uh, uh, classification patients which were successfully treated with the levetiracetam, so they were seizure-free. They didn't have any seizure anymore. And patients that didn't respond to levetiracetam, and just with the EG performed before the drug, we saw that we could predict the answer to the levetiracetam. And uh, we also trained the, the model and we tried, we tested it with the nine new patients. So we have 23 patients plus additional nine patients. And our model was able to predict the outcome in these new nine patients with a very good accuracy. So we had, um, it is quite technical, but let's say that we have this, it is called a rock curve. So receiving operative characteristic, which is the standard practice to evaluate if our machine learning model is good, if we can predict the, the answer that we want uh, to know. And we saw that it had a high accuracy, so a 0.8 accuracy using the EG performed before therapy and after three months therapy. So with a very early EG, we could predict the answer to the most common, one of the most common anti-seizure anti medication, which is used in clinical practice. And this is a really, really, uh, really good news because if we could use this in clinical practice and future studies will, will reveal us if uh, this is the case, uh, this will be really life-changing for a physician that uh, treat uh, people with epilepsy every day. So that's the main 
topic of my uh, research. I, I hope it will be clear. It's very complex. It's very complex, but the principles are not because machine learning is, as I say, uh, it's not a black box that can tell us, oh, I give you the EG and he gives me a return, a profile with which drugs to try. That's the, the, the dream, the hope. But as for now, we are uh, we are going step by step, really baby step, but we are going in that direction and uh, I'm really excited about it. And for now we are, I've tried just one drug, so levetiracetam, which is the most, one of the most common antihistamine medication, but our plans are now to expand our database and we are already, already doing this. So we are actually collaborating with the six large epilepsy centers in Italy. We are collecting new data. So we are collecting a large amount of data. We are almost 200, uh, and two, 250 patients with focal epilepsy with a new diagnosis of focal epilepsy. And we also collect energy uh, with uh, uh, other drugs other than levetiracetam. So for example, we are collecting also sodium channel, sodium channel blockers, uh, antiepileptic uh, uh, drugs such as lamotrizine, such as carbamazepine, um, um, such as lacosamide. So we have a lot of drugs now and we want to train our model to differentiate the answer to other drugs other than levetiracetam in order to create really a profile of uh, answer. So we will really have a personalized personalized medicine for people with epilepsy with a really, really mm-hmm. low budget technique because this is a low density G and every center says low density G. So that's our hope and that's the main uh, topic of my PhD uh right now so we are very excited about it and we are a good point because we already have collected the data we are starting now the analysis and we hope to have very soon the preliminary results uh in order to see if the model is good enough good enough for clinical practice wow it it just sounds like such a amazing tool for physicians to be able to predict what's going to happen in the future i mean that's almost like the dream of diagnosing and, and you know, the prognosis. Um, so to yeah. be able to do that with a computer with such accuracy is such an amazing tool to have. Um, so what type of, what is the patient profile and, and what, what is epilepsy for some, you know, medical students that are just kind of getting into the field um, or patients that are, um, you know, maybe just first starting to experience a seizure something like that. What, what, what type of patient might benefit from this? Yeah, that's a great question. It's very important to, um, to underline this, this concept because what is epilepsy? Epilepsy is a very, uh, it's a very complex and um, large disorder because the non-physician thinks of epilepsy as the generalized tonic-clinic seizures. So the common belief of epilepsy is usually that. So people who has the tonic-clonic seizure, so the use of convulsive seizure, but epilepsy is much more because it is a disorder uh, which is caused by an abnormal acti- activation of neural circuits in the brain. These circuits can be focal, uh, as in my case, in my population, which uh, in my research project. So patient that has a part of the brain which is hyperactive and which is go uh, in a hypersynchronized way. And uh, later on it uh, engages other neural circuits and it can result in a combustive seizure. Or if it, if it not, the focal seizure may remain limited to that part of the brain and just give us uh, other symptoms. For example, a patient can have an, an absence, so he can have a loss of awareness, as we say in our, uh, in our uh, standard terminology. So the patient can be um, non-responsive for a couple of seconds or also for a couple of minutes. He can have also a premonitory feeling, such as a, a, an abdominal discomfort or such as a, a deja vu, so a, a sensation of something that it has already experienced in the past, but it's just a sensation. Or maybe he can have a really, really various amount of feelings because it depends on the area of the brain that this is activated in that mm-hmm. moment. You can, uh, the, patient, the patients can also have uh, um, visual hallucinations such as they can see flash of lights or they can hear sounds that that are really not present and after this they can have the loss of awareness and other type of uh, uh, manifestation for example they can move an arm they can move just the leg they can have uh, um, like a shaking of the of the hand they can be also very very subtle very difficult to, to spot so there are a lot, a lot of epilepsies, but they 
all of these are caused by this abnormal activation of neurons in the brain. Um, then we have also another type of epilepsy, which is called generalized epilepsy. This is a bit different from the one that I've told you before, told you, uh, told you before the focal epilepsy, because in the generalized epilepsy, there is a rapid, a quick engagement of all the brain at once. So uh, in this case, it is most more common to have the convulsive seizures that we are most familiar with. So the patient that can that became uh, very stiff and then after the stiffness it can have the uh, the convulsion so the shaking of the uh, of the fora uh, limbs um or uh, otherwise it can have the so-called absence so it can uh, it can be an, uh, a loss of awareness but very prolonged but it can be also very prolonged or otherwise another type of uh, generalized uh, epilepsy is the myoclonic epilepsy which is uh, quick and uh, uh, very uh, very very rapid very quick contraction of muscle in the very uh, in different parts of the of the body, we can can have it can be a quick contraction of the arm or a quick contraction of the leg. But it's uh, it's important that it should be very quick. It should last uh, less than seventy milliseconds to be classified as uh, myoclonus. But this is these are details. So there are a lot of epilepsies. Um, my project is on focal epilepsy, which are the most common epilepsies in uh, adults, and they can be caused by. Uh, many different, uh, uh, many different alterations, many different um, pathologies. Usually, when we have a temporal lobe epilepsy, which is the most common type of epilepsy, um, and the one discussed in your paper as well. Exactly. So the temporal lobe epilepsy, which commonly is. Uh, uh, Temporal lobe epilepsy seizures are very typical because they are like the one that I described before. So the patient may have a, feel, a, a premonition feelings of the seizure, like a, a, an abdominal, a, a gastric dis discomfort, which is uh, a rising gastric discomfort. So a sensation that is rising from the stomach up to the mouth. And then they have the loss of awareness. They can have a lip smacking. They, they can have a dystonic posturing. Um, they are very very stereotyped seizures, so it, it, it's quite easy to recognize them. And this is the most common type of epilepsy, and they can be caused by, for example, a pathology, a pathology which is called hippocampal sclerosis. So if you do an MRI in this patient, you may find the um, mesial temporal lobe, so the hippocampus, which is the structure on the temporal lobe, which is very important for memory, for the memory consolidation, just a lot of, lot of functions really, but uh, mostly for the memory and for the uh, preservation of uh, our uh, our memory, our uh, remembrance. And in some patients, this, uh, this hippocampus may be sclerotic. So you can see a scar in the hippocampus and it is right, this, this scar that it creates these abnormal neural circuits that after, after a while it uh, developed in a temporal lobe epilepsy, which is caused by this uh, sclerosis. So this is one of the most common causes, but there are of course any kind of uh, disease that can cause a scar in the brain or a focal pathology in the brain can result in a focal epilepsy. So as you see, there are a lot of causes, but we can also have uh, no clear causes for the epilepsy. So the, this is are the more challenging cases because uh, are the so-called idiopathic epilepsy. So patients who have epilepsy, but with non apparent cause, or maybe because we are, our techniques, our MRI images are not pre uh, precise enough to spot it because maybe we are still uh, we are still not pre precise enough with our uh, neuroimaging techniques. So, um, but these are the most challenging case. And in my paper, I had a lot of patients with this type of epilepsy because it is quite common. So, uh, yeah, this are a, a little overview on the epilepsies and um, the my court, which is temporal lobe epilepsies, which is one of the most common form of epilepsy. And, and yeah, and one of the most uh, drugs, the most common anti-seizure medication, which is tried in these patients is levetiracetam, which is, was the drug that I studied in my, um, in my paper that uh, mm -hmm. also because it is very, uh, very common to find EG of patients that try this drug because it's so commonly used because it is very convenient because it has low, it is uh, safe, it has a uh, low rate of adverse events and it has no um, any any uh, trouble with the liver, with the liver enzyme. It is very safe, so it, that's why it was it is uh, commonly used in clinical practice. 
Wonderful. And thank you for that background. It's, it's definitely helpful uh, for patients and for uh, younger students to kind of understand what we're talking about here. So for the busiest of readers, uh, clinicians, um, fellow researchers that are, you know, heavily invested in their own work, uh, what type of result do you think is the most important for them to take away from this paper? and to kind of be thinking about and be considering in their, maybe in their own practice or in, in uh, similar research. Yeah, so um, that's very important because the main idea behind this project was to find a way to exploit simple techniques, such as the low density G, which is a technique, as I say, that is used in every epilepsy center and to go beyond the uh, clinical lecture of the EEG and just try to analyze it with quantitative analysis, which is um, an objective analysis of the hidden features of the EEG, which goes beyond the just visual interpretation of spikes or of seizures of, of focus lowering. It just go beyond that and to try to, um, to see if these features could be used in clinical practice to predict the answer to the anti-seizure medication, in this case, leptiracetam, which is the most common use, as I say, one of the most common use anti-seizure medication in adults. Uh, our results show that the EG performed before the initiation of leptiracetam, so the EG performed even before that the patient was on drugs, was able to predict the response to the drugs. Uh, in the paper, we saw that the EG that was most useful in the prediction of uh, to the drug was the EG performed before, but also the EG performed right after the initiation of the drug. So we call that EG the T1 EG, while the EG performed before the initiation was the T0 EG. So we have this T0 EG, which is the EG performed before, and the T1 EG. And the combination of the fissure extracted for, from the T1 EG and the T0 EG was able to predict the answer to the to the drug. Uh, we intend, we, the definition of answer is seizure freedom. So seizure freedom means that the patient had no more seizure for two years after the initiation of the drugs with the, yeah. The so that's, that's the absolute truth you were talking about in terms of that's the, my, uh, machine learning. So that that exactly. is what the machine is trying to predict is seizure freedom exactly. after two years. Yeah, more than predict to classify in this case, because it is a supervised learning. So we already know which patient is seizure-free and which patient was not seizure-free on medication. And we want to see if there are hidden features that can classify for now and also predict, of course, but this is more of a classification model in this, in this case, because it is a supervised learning. Um, and we saw that this is possible and this is feasible. The most exciting part was that we first tried our algorithm with our first database, which we consisted in 23 patients with temporal lobe epilepsy. And we saw that the algorithm was able to predict the outcome with a good precision with the area of the uh, area under the curve, which is the standard measurement of accuracy for the classification of a model or prediction of a model mm -hmm. of 0 0.8, which is almost, I mean, almost perfect. The perfect perfection would be the 1.0, but I mean, 0 0.8, uh, which is good for a low density G. I mean, yeah. it was more than acceptable. And the most exciting part was that this model, which was trained on 23 patients, was also validated on another data set. So we collected just for this work other EG to see if our trained model could predict uh, the outcome in the patient that it, it didn't have seen before. So they are completely new patients, a completely new data set. And we saw that our model was able to predict even in the new data set, the outcome with the same amount of precision. So with a 0 0.8 accuracy, uh, area, under, area under the curve. And that was really great because it gave us, uh, it opened up the possibility to exploit this on other data sets on a larger population. And that would be of huge importance for the, for the clinician because as of course my colleagues will know um, as they listen to this podcast, it, it, to start the anti-seizure medication is very, it can be very challenging because you don't know what force, if one, if the drugs would work, 
So that's the most important things, of course. But two, you can also have the worries that the drugs will have adverse events on the patient. So uh, also levetiracetam, which is quite safe, can have some adverse event, mostly neuropsychiatric, neuropsychiatric adverse events. So the patient can be um, can have dizziness, it can have a sort of um, irritability. That's the most common adverse event for levetiracetam, so a sort of irritability, uh, agitation, a sort of uh, uh, feeling of um, easy, easy anger, um, and, and, and an adverse event which affects the mood mostly. Uh, and that can be, can be also quite um, quite important for the patient. So it, it, it is really a thing to start an anti-seizure medication and to have an algorithm that, that could tell us in advance that the, that the drug would work on that particular patient, it will give us a huge, huge amount of information. It will be so much easier to start a drug in a patient with, in a, in a person with focal epilepsy. So the hopes now is to uh, expand this algorithm, which has already been trained and validated on other drugs other than levetiracetam, because for patients with focal epilepsy, it's, it's true that we use levetiracetam, but we also should use another, another type of antisocial drugs, which are called sodium channel blockers. So mm -hmm. sodium channel blocks are a type of antisocial drugs that is um, acting on the sodium channels. So sodium channels as a type of channels in neurons in the brain, and they are uh, much activated in focal epilepsy. So we have a class of drugs which is particularly suited for patients with focal epilepsy. And the next step of my research is to try this algorithm on this other type of drugs to see if there are differences in the as I, as I told you before, in these hidden features in DG when using levetiracetam or when using anti uh, sodium channel broker medication. In this regard, I had another publication on clinical neurophysiology um, on this same topic. I didn't use machine learning in that case. It was uh, about EG connectivity. It was more on exploratory uh, research projects. And I already saw that uh, levetiracetam induced some changes in the EG connectivity of the, of the patient, because we must always remember that epilepsy, it is true that it's a disorder of neurons, a disorder of uh, cortical circuits, but it is mostly a network disorder. So epilepsy is a network disorder, and it is really, really important. It is essential to understand which nodes of the network is uh, affected in the, each uh, singular epilepsy in, in this particular patient because uh, it is not about the focal epilepsy, it is about to understand how the network is um, damaged and how the network is affecting the uh, physiological uh, circuit in the brain of that particular patient. So that was the, and we hope to integrate this part of the connectivity also in the machine learning model in the future. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of exciting things to do, a lot of exciting things to explore, and we hope to be able to do it very soon. So it feels like one of the most important parts of this process is that initial prediction and that like that T0 um, point in the EEG. Uh, and, I, and I think I read somewhere in your paper that you're trying to extract the important variables. I, I, that might not be the most, uh, the best way to uh, phrase that, but uh, you want to get a sense of what variables is machine learning uh, predicting are the most important uh, in the prediction. Do you have any sense of that? Do you have any ideas on what uh, the machine learning algorithm is looking at in terms of, uh, you know, this is the variable that should be looked at? And is that something that uh, a clinician without the program, without the software, can maybe look at? That's a great question. And it's given me the opportunity to, uh, to talk about the machine learning more in detail, because this is true. Uh, in this case, in my research, we use a supervised machine learning model. So the features, the important features, as you told, as you uh, were saying before, uh, were chosen by us. So it was an analysis of DG. And in this case, it was the power spectrum density, it is called. So we analyzed the amount of frequency in a particular band. So for example, as, as maybe not everybody knows, but DG is a signal which has 
a quite amount of frequency within it. So we can have multiple frequencies within it. And the frequencies are divided into multiple class according to their speed or a cycle for seconds. So we have the slow frequencies such as the delta, the theta. We have the medium frequencies such as the posterior dominant rhythm, which is the alpha rhythm in adults mostly, which is 8, 8 12, 8, 13. Then we have the fast frequencies such as the beta frequency, the gamma frequencies, and also the, the uh, high frequency uh, oscillation, which are, for example, the gamma frequencies, and also higher, but for scalpg, just for the gamma. And what we did was to decompose the signal and to see the amount of each of these frequencies in the signal, in the resting state signal. And we give this numerical information, in the end, it was a numerical information, to the algorithm to see if patients that were seizure-free after drugs were at the different power spectrum compared to patients that were not seizure-free after the initiation of the levity rascal. And that's the, the feature that we choose. Mm -hmm. So which actually choose the, the feature. It was not the algorithm who picked the seizure by itself, but it will be really excited at this is our next goal to use another type of machine learning algorithm, which is called convolutional neural network which is a different type of algorithm because it is called the deep learning algorithm, which is distinct from the supervised machine learning. Because in this case, we are just giving the algorithm the data, in this case, the EG. Uh, we can also choose with what we to give it to the algorithm. We can also give it uh, some type, some some part of DG, not all of DG. Anyway, we are giving DG blindly to the algorithm and the algorithm will learn by itself to have a classification on its own. And then we will see if the classification that the algorithm has done by itself correspond to the real ground truth to the classification that after, afterwards we will know uh, the patients will have. So if the, if the classification made by the algorithm correspond to the classification, to the real classification. And that is the deep convolutional neural network. Uh, and that will be really exciting because in that case, we will not uh, need to, uh, to tell to the algorithm what to see, but it will be the algorithm by itself. It's something more challenging because it could also not be so straightforward to do, but it's something that we will definitely try to do. And as for your second question, if the clinician could see some of this feature by itself on DG, um, not in the traditional way. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, they cannot see it uh, with their with with their own eyes. I mean, visually, they need some dedicated software to see these type of features. But mo mostly uh, nowadays, in kind of all epilepsy centers, there are way to see the power spectrum, for example. So some type of quantitative analysis is already available, also for clinical practice. There is another type, for example, of quantitative analysis, which is called time frequency analysis, which is used in some center. So there are some features that can be extracted by the, by the physician by itself without using any kind of algorithm, but they are not so used in clinical practice. So that's one, another point that I would like to stress. So it, will, it is very important that uh, nowadays, uh, this advanced technique uh, needs to be integrated in clinical practice when they will be validated, of course, but uh, physi us, us physicians should be open-minded to accept new technique, to integrate new technique in the, in the clinical practice to, to faci facilitate life and also to help the clinical management of patients, of course. Certainly. So uh, you said you had other plans to um, look at other medications. Do you have plans to try and apply this software to other uh, EEG-related uh, pathologies? As a matter of fact, I do. We do. Um, we have another project uh, which is on patients with ischemic stroke, which is a very different pathology, but of course more common. It's a very important uh, disease, uh, one, of, one of the leading case of disability in the Western world. So we are trying to use this uh, machine learning on EG analysis on patients who had a stroke to try to predict the uh, 
a response to uh, a robotic therapy because um, if, if uh, it is not known, there are some physical therapy which imply the use of a robotic system, for example, to uh, help the um, gain of motor function in the paretic arm or to help to regain the um, working. So for example, they can have also, a, it is called exoskeletron, so an exoskeletron, which can be used to aid in the um, gaining of working or for, for physical therapy mostly. And so our purpose is to try to use the advanced uh, quantitative EG analysis uh, using, in this case, high density G. So it is not the low density G, but in EG with more channels, at least uh, 256 channels. Wow, that's quite an, that is a, a, lot, a lot of, of channels. <laughs> yeah, so it, it is not um, easy to uh, to use in every centers, but still we, we want to try to, to be more precise in this case. And we want to see if the changes in functional connectivity using always the, in this case, the EG in this case, uh, could be able to predict the answer, the response to physical therapy using robotic systems. Uh, so for example, the exoskeletron or the robotic arm for the rehabilitation mm -hmm. of, of uh, arm paresis. And this is another, um, another big, big field in our research um, project. It is on a very different pathology though, but it is very exciting. Yeah, and it's, I'm sure, you know, has so much potential to help patients in need. Um, so, you know, what are the implications for clinicians, for researchers of this research, of your paper? Do you think you're gonna be trying to uh, push this software out to clinicians? Do you have plans on trying to patent this type of um, software, anything like that? Yeah, so it is quite a long, uh, long time, um, a long time plans because we are at a very early stage right now because we have just validated the first uh, algorithm on a very few population, a very limited population that was my our first publication. Um, so step by step, the um, the projects are the aims are to try to first enlarge the database and we have already done this then try this algorithm on new drugs and we are trying to do this right now then to try to uh, develop new machine learning algorithm with different uh, um, different mechanisms so supervised learning but also deep convolutional neural net uh, learning as i said before or other unsupervised learning so we want to exp exp experiment uh, which is the best algorithm to choose. After that, we will have uh, chosen the more appropriate uh, algorithm. We want to uh, try to propose a longitudinal study to see if this algorithm could effectively change the clinical management of people with epilepsy. So we want to try first a longitudinal study on multiple, on multicentric longitudinal study and try to see if using this algorithm, people who are tr treated uh, under the suggestion of this algorithm have a better outcome than people uh, who are not treated under the suggestion of this algorithm. So this will be the first step to see if this algorithm is useful, actually useful in clinical practice. And after that, we will have validated this with the longitudinal prospective studies. The final step will be the validation of a soft dedicated software, which could also be uh, inside an app or inside the dedicated soft computer software. So something that should be installed in the computer of the hospital. But this is the very last step, which will take some years, a lot of years, I don't know. But yeah, that's the final. Of course, we have in mind the, the path that we want to, to, pursue, to pursue, but it will take some time. But yeah, yeah, the, definitely we have everything in mind. And we hope that we will be able to achieve this because it will be really, really uh, life-changing also for the, for the patients. And, so are you uh, planning on pursuing any new projects uh, in your PhD program? Are you working with, um, you know, a specific mentor on this project? Um, you know, what, what, are you, what is your future research plan uh, for, for this? 
Thank you for asking. Uh, yes, of course, I have other uh, other projects in mind. As for now, um, my mentors are, I have a lot of mentors for this project because they give me all of them uh, the inspiration for the for the idea in the end. Uh, in Italy, of course, there is uh, Professor Vincenzo Di Lazzaro, which is my first mentor since I was a medical student. Also, Dr. Um, Giovanni Essenza and Professor Mario Tombini here in Italy were my uh, epilepsy mentor more specifically here in Italy. So I uh, own them uh, a lot. Uh, but I also have uh, a research mentor, which is Professor Christos Pavodelis, which is actually working in the uh, Cook Children Hospital in Texas. Um, and he was my really my research mentor because he gives me the idea of uh, the mindset of how the researcher should work uh, it really, really was my, um, the one that really taught me how you should uh, um, design, design a, a research project in detail, every step, step by step, really, really, it was fundamental for my formation. And also Professor Eleonora Tamilia, which is now working in the Boston Children's Hospital in Boston, so I owe them uh, both of them uh, a lot. And now my future research projects will be on uh, um, drug-resistant epilepsy patients. So just to uh, remember, drug-resistant uh, means uh, when patients fail to answer to at least two uh, anti-seizure medication, uh, medication, which are appropriately chosen and at the right dosage. So if a patient doesn't answer to two drugs, it keeps having seizure despite the anti-seizure medications, then it is, co is called uh, drug-resistant epilepsy patients. And in this case, one of the best therapeutic options is epilepsy surgery. So my second main research project is on um, epilepsy surgery. I have already a publication on uh, an analytical technique which uh, uh, should help in the localization of the epileptogenic zone, which I remember is the uh, zone which is fundamental for the um, initiation of seizures mm -hmm. uh, and for the generation of seizures in focal epilepsies. So if we could be able to localize the epileptogenic zone and then remove it with surgery, uh, we will achieve seizure freedom. So this is the main goal of epilepsy surgery, of course. And my project was about the use of a technique which is called electrical source imaging, which is a technique that combines the use of MRI of the patients and EEG, in my case, low-density EEG, uh, to localize the seizure of the patient. So I use the seizures where, uh, which were recorded during the long-term monitoring, and I use this technique to localize the decision on set zone in this case. Um, and we saw that even using low density G, this technique would, can have a high precision, high accuracy. So uh, all epilepsy centers should be able to use it and should use it to um, candidate patients for epilepsy surgery. And my next step will be to use a, uh, a technique which is called virtual implantation which means that we are reconstructed intracranial EG without doing the intracranial EG implantation. It's quite interesting because we are not actually uh, implanting the patients with intracranial electrodes. I remember that patients with focal epilepsy sometimes needs to be uh, studied with intracranial EG electrodes because we are, to be sure, to have localized correctly the epileptogenic zone, to be uh, simple. And what is the difference between intracranial versus the, the typical EEG that we've been discussing The difference so far? is that it is an invasive technique. So you, you need to do a surgery before the actual surgery to implant the electrodes inside the brain of the patients. The electrodes can be uh, the depth electrodes, so they have some kind of electrode inside deeply in the brain, mm -hmm. and they can also be some grid, so the grid which are applied um, on the... Um, very superficially on the brain. So they can, there are two types of intercanality. Thank you for that. Anyway, yeah, anyway, this is a very invasive technique. Also, you have only a partial coverage because you can only cover a portion of the brain, a part of the brain, not the whole brain at once. Uh, and the, my next research idea will be to use the electrical source imaging 
to do a virtual intracranial implantation. So to do an intracranial EG implantation, but without doing the surgery. So you just uh, reconstruct the signal from the EG electrodes inside the brain of the patient, but without, without actually doing any invasive procedures. Um, this is already been done with the high density EG and with the MEG. It has never been done with the seizures, despite there are some cases now also with seizure and MEG. But uh, in my next research, I would like to try to use it using low density G. And also then I will, I will try to use it with a combination of uh, high density G, MEG and scalp EG to see if the added value of the virtual implantation could eventually um, um, be a substitute for the real intracranial EG uh, implantation, which of course is an invasive procedure that it can have uh, surgical complications and uh, it can also offer a partial brain coverage. Instead with the virtual implantation, you can pick the, the cortical areas to explore. You can explore every, uh, every portion of the brain event potentially. So you have no limits in this, in this case. And that would be uh, also an exciting, um, an exciting technique to exploit. And we hope to obtain uh, substantial results also in this case. All right. So for the next segment in the podcast, I want to kind of talk about your career. Um, and if you have any helpful tips or tricks for, uh, you know, younger students or, you know, maybe even people in high school, undergraduate um, looking to, you know, pursue this path of becoming a, a doctor of neurology. Uh, so, so to begin, uh, what, what was your path to medicine? What did that look like? Sure, sure. Um, well, my path was quite straightforward at first because um, um, in reality, I didn't know that I will be a neurologist since the very last year of my med school. So in Italy, we have a very long med school, which lasts six years. And I decided to pick neurology really, really at the end of my um, med school. Mm -hmm. Um, also, the epileptology career was uh, quite often uh, a late choice in a way, but uh, in the end, after my second year of residency, I understood that epilepsy was my way, uh, also because I was always uh, very, very fond, very, I always uh, liked um, neurophysiology and the neurophysiological technique. So for me, DG was always really fascinating, really complex, this really complex technique with all these signals. And I was really always fascinated by it, also by the uh, recording of seizures to see all these different types of seizures on DG, to see how the EG uh, is changing depending on the seizure that you are recording. So it's a very complex topic and I fell in love with it in a way. So um, I also was quite uh, atypical in a way because I also liked a lot the computational analysis because I, uh, I really like computer. I all, even before starting med school, I already had some kind of uh, computer skills, soft skill. So it was quite uh, in the end obvious because it was a way to... Um, to unite these, both of these skills, you know, so I could have the computer skills and the clinical skill and then use it together to do research because then in the end I used uh, computer programming to analyze DG. So it was just perfect for me. My advice for younger uh, students, for younger uh, med students that would like to pursue the neurology career is to be as early as possible in understanding what you like, what you want to do, and what you want to choose. Because the first you have your mindset clear, the first you will be able to be to enjoy what you do, to be productive, to uh, to have the right to pursue the right idea, the right uh, the right thing. But if you do something that you don't really doesn't like, you really don't like, it will be much harder to to pursue some the research in that field. So it's really important to understand early what you want to do in order to uh, starting to, to make experience in that field. For example, if you are at the last, last year of your med school and you 
are starting to see that you like neurology, you should also start to think of what uh, section of neurology you like. If you like the epilepsy part, if you like the um, uh, if you like the stroke part, for example, if you like the uh, child neurology, if you like the inflammation diseases such as multiple sclerosis, you should be on the right mindset. You should be as early as possible. And when you uh, have decided, the idea will come to you because you will have chosen the, something that you like and you will see what are the needs of your elder uh, colleagues. You will see what are the, the problem that they have and you will uh, try to find a solution and you will have the research idea there. So you must be, you should be uh, as as quick as possible to decide what you like. So that's, it is difficult, but that's the most important thing to understand because once you have understood that what you like, what you want to do, then it is really easy to, to get some idea to, and then to be productive and to be good on your, on your job, on your um, also research field. So what keeps you motivated? What keeps you uh, going to work every day and, and uh, pursuing with you know, the, the most excellence that you can? Uh, well, so uh, as for now, I have so many projects that I'm following that uh, uh, it is that mostly. So I, I want to see uh, where I'm going. I, I, and I like seeing that my projects are going uh, uh, in the right direction. I like to have new ideas. So as I said before, uh, I choose epilepsy uh, quite early. And now I'm pursuing this with all my uh, with all my strengths, with all my uh, possibilities. And the idea just, uh, they, they came naturally because I see what are the needs and I try to to solve those needs. And uh, I also like uh, going beyond the clinical part. So I like to study by myself, for example, something also which is not clinically related. So I like to program computer programming by myself. I also have uh, software engineers which who helped me in the, of course, uh, we collaborate with the, uh, Professor Zappasodi at the uh, University of Gabriele D'Annunzio in Chieti in Italy. Uh, they are a fundamental part of our uh, research team. So they are very, uh, we are collaborating with them for uh, the production of the machine learning algorithm. But despite that, I like to be always present when we do the research meeting, when we do the uh, research validation of the algorithm. I like to program myself. I like to learn how to program. I like to go behind the surface to like to understand why things are um, working the way they work. So I like to be uh, to understand things, not just to uh, use them passively. I want to be active in the what I do. And I think that's what uh, motivates me most, just to try to go beyond, to be independent on the what I do, to be able to understand why um, my research is going that way. So to be also an active, not just the, uh, the one where the idea and then gives to other people to do it, but to be an active uh, participant of the development of the, the project. That's really, really important. Yeah, a, a love of learning is such a, such a great skill and an important skill, uh, maybe the most important skill for doctors. So uh, for all of our students out there listening, you know, just take that to heart. You gotta, you gotta love what you're learning and, you know, pursue it with that passion. Um, so uh, for, uh, especially here in the US, uh, research is a critical part of um, getting involved in a residency program. Um, it's, it's very common to need publications these days to get into competitive residency programs. Uh, what advice, and, and I'm not sure what, it might be similar in Italy at this point as well, but uh, what advice would you have for students looking for a good faculty mentor? Uh, what is the uh, tips or tricks for uh, finding a mentor and then developing and uh, maintaining a strong relationship? Um, this is a quite difficult um, uh, question for me because in Italy it's very different because we have uh, uh, a national uh, test uh, like you have maybe I think you have the same but we don't um, we don't have much points for publications just the test so you decide your future the day of the test so we don't have this type of uh, issue in the way 
but of course it is uh, i can answer, of course i can give some advice the first the first thing that i would like to suggest is the one that i said before so you must understand what you like because if you try to do publication a topic that you really don't like it will be just really really a pain and you won't be productive so you first need to understand what's the topic that you would like to to pursue and it, it would be helpful, helpful also to have a, a a first uh, a first idea i know that uh, being a med student it's difficult to have a research idea out at least uh, a way to uh, develop the research idea but mainly the the topic the topic that you would like to um to understand more mm -hmm. and then you need to of course you need a mentor so you need to find a mentor which can be at your university at your med school which is the expert of that particular topic and you can have a, a chat with him to uh, to say uh, that you want to pursue that uh, um, that particular topic that you want to um, answer to a specific question on that topic. And I'm sure that every uh, every senior every senior in every university will be just excited to have someone uh, that is a, that is also in, uh, that also like his particular topic. It's uh, um, it's uh, it's topic of work and. Of course, he will give he will give a, a research idea and will mentor with more um, with more active and more active mentorship. So it is really important to understand what you want to, to pursue, to want to uh, to study, to evaluate, to find possibly uh, an answer that in an, in an answer that question. So something that should be cleared uh, in a way. Uh, it can also be a clinical, uh, a, a clinical uh, research work. So it, 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 is not, it, it has not to be a neurophysiological advanced research work. It can also be a clinical question. For example, it could be a retrospective study. It could be also a database study. For med students, it's, it's the ideal starting point. I also, uh, one of my first publications was a retrospective study on a, on a database. So I just went to the hospital and I had all this uh, uh, information that I uh, compiled in an Excel. So it was, it's, it's, everyone starts like that, but it is really important. And it is really important to, uh, to start doing this because the first you, you start, the, the better will be later because the first paper is always the, the most difficult because uh, and no one teach you statistics, no one teach you how to write a paper, but you must, you must just do it. And then have a mentor that uh, um, tells you what's wrong, how to, how to correct what you, the mistakes you've done, how to do statistics in a, in, in a simple way, in, uh, in a simple but in an efficient way because statistics doesn't have to be uh, difficult, always difficult. Statistics needs to answer a question, needs to answer uh, a specific question. And sometimes a simple statistic test is more than enough and also more efficient and more efficient, more brilliant than a complex statistical method that doesn't answer anything and it is uh, not um, uh, comprehensible. So you must learn the first, uh, the simple statistic test and the simple, uh, simple things and answer a specific question, which could be also a clinical question. So that's my first advice. Don't be scared to start to learn um, statistics or start to learn research because it can be done by anyone. You just need to find a good mentor and you, the way to find a good mentor is to find the topic that you like. So first pursue, understand what you like, find a mentor that is the expert in that particular topic in, that, in your medical school and start doing step-by-step -step, uh, uh, under his guidance, uh, the statistical analysis, the data collection and everything. And it will be done in the end, I'm sure. All right, so uh, one of my last questions I like to ask everybody is, um, you know, what is your favorite pastime? What do you like to do when you're not uh, pursuing medicine, pursuing research, um, you know, what do you like to spend in your free time? Uh, so a lot of things, of course, uh, this is the, maybe the most difficult question. I like a lot of, things. I like playing, uh, lately I like to play chess also online. Um, I always been a quite good players, but, uh, right now I'm playing a lot. So if you want to, uh, challenge me on chess.com. You are welcome to add me. <laughs> uh, 
Then I always uh, also like uh, music. I, in Italy, we have uh, a lot of concerts. It's a really enjoyable city to to see live music. I mean, now because with the COVID nineteen, it wasn't possible. But now they are starting again. I also like enjoy uh, doing sports. I enjoy running. I live by the sea, so I also like. Uh, swimming. For a certain time, I also did uh, some surfing. I'm, I'm not a Californian like surfing, but um, some type of surfing here in Rome uh, when I was young and now, no? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I try to be active. I try to read a lot. I like reading. And even though, uh, unfortunately, I have a very little free time, but when I'm free, I try to maintain me active, maintain uh, doing doing things, so yeah. Great, well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Clinical Neurophysiology Ask the Experts. Uh, it was so great talking about your work and getting to discuss career and uh, you know future trajectories for your research as well. Uh, it sounds like you have a great path ahead of you and the work that you're doing is gonna make such an impact for clinicians, patients, and uh, you know future doctors as well. I'm very excited to see where your work goes and uh, hopefully uh, hear some more about uh, your research in the future. Thank you so much for having, uh, having me here, for having invited me to this podcast. It was a really a pleasure to, to talk with you and to, to do this interview. And I hope that I was clear. Uh, even though English is not my native language, I hope that the key, the key point was uh, clear enough so to anyone to understand. And uh, I hope that my research will go ahead, as I, as I said, in the, uh, in the future direction that I uh, exposed. So yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> and so if other researchers wanted to get in touch with you to collaborate or discuss your research further, uh, how could they do so? Yeah, of course. I have my uh, mail address in my publication, but my, will, uh, uh, my mail address is uh, lorenzo.ricci. Uh, at uh, polyclinicocampus.it, but I will maybe uh, write it on the, the social network of uh, uh, clinical neurophysiology. Um, but in my publication, they can find also my email address. So they are really welcome to contact me if they want to collaborate with me on research projects and on if there are some questions on anything. So I'm really available when, uh, when they want. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ritchie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Clinical Neurophysiology. Ask the experts.